and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Daniel S. Markey, Senior Research Professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Daniel, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to be with you, John. You published a book last year called China's Western Horizon, uh, looking at Chinese foreign policy across the Eurasian continent. It's a very informative analysis, especially in the way that you illuminate specific local dynamics in regions where China's influence is increasing. But just to start us out in the broadest terms, how would you describe China's global aspirations? What does Beijing want and how is it trying to get it? Well, it's a great question, and thank, thanks for referring to the book. Uh, look, I think there's a lot of debate about what China is up to in the world. And to simplify things, I would, I would just say that um, we know one thing for sure. Uh, China is doing more and seems to be significantly more ambitious in its agenda for interacting both with its neighbors and internationally than it was 10 years ago or 15 or 20 years ago. And if we look at the likely trajectory, this seems to be holding steady. And if we look ahead, we can anticipate more of the same. So what does China want to do with its power? Well, I think that's, that's a debate and with its power and its influence, but that's a debate that's happening both inside of China and externally as well. And, you know, we can take this conversation in lots of different directions, but I think we still have a lot of unanswered questions about you know, does China want to make the world remake the world in its image? Uh, does China want to remake its neighbors politically or economically in its image? Does China want to control or dominate its region uh, to the exclusion of other powers? I'd say we have uh, more questions than answers still in a lot of these areas. But one thing is for sure, as I go back to the beginning, uh, China's got more power and resources and capacity for influence than it ever has. Uh, certainly in any in anyone's lifetime. And we, we can expect that that's going to change things uh, nearby and farther afield. To what extent does achieving a respected status as a leading great power animate Beijing's policies? And conversely, to what extent do you think America's approach to China has become a harder line out of fear that China is challenging America's position atop the global pecking order? <laughs> I talk about this a bit in the book. And I, I think, you know, I'm I'm quite a lot more comfortable observing the ins and outs of how America is responding to China, in part because of China's own opaque system. It is difficult to really be certain, and anyone who suggests they are certain about uh, what motivates China is either, uh, you know, overreaching a bit uh, in their in their understanding of, of what's going on there, or there's certainly a degree of speculation. Um, but what I can say is that certainly Americans are uncomfortable with the notion of being pushed out from the number one place in the international system, and even uncomfortable with the notion of being pushed out of the number one place in the Asia Pacific, or now the Indo-Pacific. And China threatens to do that uh, in just simply because of its, its scale, its capacity, uh, at first economically, but increasingly politically and militarily as well. And so, um, you know, I think what we've seen throughout history is that powers, world powers, rise often economically first, followed by military and political power. Um, and as they rise, their ambitions are shaped in part by how they rise and the conditions of their rise. And so I think China is in the midst of that. 
uh, for fairly well along, and uh, increasingly seems ambitious in its dealings, certainly with the United States and with its nearby neighbors. And you know, in the book, I talk a bit about a shift that I've observed from uh, this hiding and biding uh, pattern of of China's relations with the world to one of of striving for achievement. So one of sort of sort of uh, hiding its capabilities, biding its time, uh, expecting that good things will come to China, China who waits, and now increasingly uh, kind of stressing its capabilities, uh, flexing its muscles, uh, demonstrating its leadership in a variety of ways that really have only emerged, I think, for sure over the past decade. What does uh, ha- achieving a, uh, or possessing a, a high status mean uh, in terms of the real world? Is it just um, about perceptions uh, and m- even perhaps more, is it just about self-perceptions uh, or does it manifest in ways that actually matter for power and influence? Oh, it's certainly both. In, in my own view, uh, there is a domestically oriented element you know, when the United States or when uh, America's leaders speak about our position as a superpower, part of that is pitched to an American audience who expects to hear that, that uh, America is in the, in the number one position in the world. For China as well, there is increasingly an audience for uh, a nationalistic, increasingly um, sort of bellicose even at times, definitely aggressive we describe it as wolf warrior diplomacy, uh, an appeal to China's greatness in its own terms um, that appeals to Chinese. But I also think that perception of power outside of China shapes the behavior of other states. And as they look to China increasingly as an alternative to American power or to whatever the regionally dominant uh, player has been in the case of Central Asia, as they look to China, maybe increasingly, and less so to Russia, the perception of power, the perception of status does shape uh, how they frame their own policies, uh, where they look to for support or for opportunities, for patronage, for additional resources, for protection, uh, for influence globally. So yeah, it's, it's not just a matter of looking inter- in, inward, uh, and pitching to a domestic audience, but it's also a matter of of looking outward. And one of the interesting questions as we think about China is who their most important audiences are as they pitch a more nationalistic uh, message to the world. It doesn't seem to go over terribly well, you know, with an American audience or even with a European audience. Uh, it definitely seems to go over better with a Chinese audience. And then there are other questions about how for contested parts of the world or for the developing world, how this message actually comes comes through. And I think there it's a mixed story. It's a, it's a case by case. But I think that China uh, wants to demonstrate uh, through, its, through its own words and actions uh, that it is arriving, it has arrived in some ways, and that is shaping the behavior and response of other, other powers in the world. Let's look at the Middle East. Uh, after decades of costly entanglement in that region, 
for the United States, there's an ongoing debate about whether we should draw down from that region and shift our focus and resources either back here at home or, or elsewhere for other strategic priorities. One concern you often hear is, well, you know, if the, if the United States abandons its kind of external hegemonic role, then China will sweep in to fill the vacuum. And as you mentioned in the book, China does have major interests in the region. Um, I think that region, you, you write, uh, provided China with 50% of its total oil imports since 2000. So what does China's approach to this region actually look like now? And where do you, just, where do you suppose it might be headed? Yeah, so, so China's interest in the Middle East, like America's interests or before us, the British interest, uh, related in many ways to resources um, and to access to, to hydrocarbons, to oil and gas. Um, and so this is no surprise that uh, as the United States has been less reliant upon Middle Eastern uh, energy, and the Chinese have, have had almost unceasing uh, demand uh, for that, that they would supplant us as a, as a buyer you know, from many of these markets, and that their interests would grow, not only in that way, but also because China is a, is a major manufacturer and seller of retail goods and other goods, um, that they would become increasingly important to these states as a trade partner uh, across the board. And now, even uh, in some cases more significantly, as a partner for investment, as uh, countries like Saudi Arabia are looking to diversify their economic portfolio, and they're looking for other external partners to build out their investments in areas beyond energy uh, to diversify uh, so that they're not entirely reliant on, on that uh, side of the house. They look to China. And so China is there and eager to be a part of that. Now, the United States uh, is uh, shifting, rebalancing, pivoting to Asia, away from the Middle East. Uh, this does clear some field for China in important ways. Um, but I think we have to be careful about what that actually means. I mean, I, first of all, we shouldn't assume that China is eager to jump in in an uh, imperial project of, of uh, the 19th or 20th century. It can, it can buy what it needs, sell what it wants, uh, have a degree of influence without playing precisely those sorts of games. Um, so we're seeing that. I think we also need to be careful to recognize that some of the choices that we have made over years about siding with one side or the others, the, the Gulf Arabs versus Iran or Israel versus uh, Iran, now China is not necessarily obligated to play the game in the same way that we are. Um, and at this point in China's history, at least, and, and we can speculate about the future, but at this point, um, it's clearly leading with the economic foot first, not the military foot, which is, of course, where we have gotten very large and very involved in the Middle East. Uh, and so we're seeing definitely a, a sort of a very different approach, an asymmetrical approach by China. But as that persists, I think we have to anticipate that with economic influence comes political influence, and with political and econ economic influence comes a certain uh, investment that may, in fact, be followed by a security presence. So we have to be careful and, and watch to see how that develops and how China plays that game uh, over time. As you mentioned, even if China doesn't start to play the kind of role that America has played in that region, it still might be the case that the United States needs to adjust uh, given China's increasing influence. And, and uh, you talk a little bit about 
um, how China's approach, approach to Iran can sometimes make U.S. priorities or initiatives in the region harder. Uh, talk about that dynamic a little bit. Yeah, we're seeing that uh, in some interesting ways just over the past few weeks. Uh, you've got the, the recently signed um, strategic partnership, 25-year cooperation deal between China and Iran that got a fair amount of attention. And uh, a number of commentators have wondered uh, just how this was likely to affect the United States and our efforts to place pressure on Iran. And uh, in some ways, uh, I worry about this as well. Uh, it's clear that, you know, as the U.S.-China relationship has deteriorated, China seems more willing to, to press the envelope with the United States, to test our limits, uh, and to do things like to ramp up its purchases um, outside of the U.S. sanctions regime, its purchases of oil from Iran. That alleviates some of the coercive pressure, certainly that the Trump administration first placed on Iran, and now the Biden administration has kept in place. Uh, as it's sought to to uh, go back to negotiations. Um, and so by alleviating some of that pressure on Iran, you might imagine that Iran would be sort of less tempted or less likely to go back into the JCPOA, that that'll make the Biden administration's life harder to renegotiate. And, and some of that may well be true. At the same time, I think it's worth recognizing uh, what Iran's motives are in all of this. And it seems to me worth recalling that it's not just a matter of Iran being pressured by the United States uh, and now China is giving it an alternative, but Iran has clearly also sought an opening, not just to, to U.S. markets and not primarily to U.S. markets or to access U.S. banks or anything like that, but to Europe and has continued to perceive that economic involvement with the Europeans is more valuable to Iran and more precious to Iran, more appealing than its relations with China. And that seems to be drawing Iran back to the nuclear negotiating table. Uh, plus, the Europeans are, are quite eager to get back to business themselves. So the key there uh, is to appreciate not just what China is up to, or even what China and the United States are doing in terms of a global geopolitical competition, but always to look also at what these lesser or less powerful states themselves want from the United States and China and how they think they can best achieve it. That'll tell you a lot of, about what's really going on. And yeah, I would add that's a, that's a big part of the logic of my book overall, uh, is to, to always look and see what these third countries are after, see how they're going to try to use China to serve their own advantages, um, to advance their agendas both domestically and regionally. Uh, that's That's got to be a big part of our calculations. Well, I want to ask next about South Asia, particularly this complicated nexus of the India-Pakistan rivalry and the ways that um, you know U.S. and Chinese approaches play off this dynamic. The U.S. has a long and rocky relationship with Pakistan. China has a long relationship with Pakistan as well, as well as a deep sea port in Gwadar. Meanwhile, the United States is trying to leverage a rela relationship with India in order to check Chinese ambitions. So help us unpack this. Yeah, there's a lot going on there, and uh, part of what I what I try to do to make a an actually a pretty complicated and dynamic story a little bit uh, more red, uh, readily digestible, but also to give it some analytical layering, is I try to break down the story of China's involvement in South Asia into kind of a two two level analysis. 
first to really get a, a handle on what China is doing in Pakistan and how that's likely to play out for Pakistan itself. And then getting into some of the areas where I think you were emphasizing to look at the regional dynamic and to think about how China's support to Pakistan, which we're seeing in new and, and really actually unprecedented ways, especially in the economic realm in terms of um, investments inside of Pakistan. You mentioned Gwadar Port, uh, infrastructure across the board to the tune of, of tens of billions of dollars, which for Pakistan is a big deal. So we're so the question is, how greater Chinese involvement in these ways is affecting uh, Pakistan's relations with India? And since it's at least a three-way game, how India is perceiving China's involvement in Pakistan, how Pakistan is perceiving China's involvement in Pakistan and its relations with India, and how China and India are themselves managing their relations, which, as we saw over the past year, can be quite contentious too. So each of these plays one into the other. And I should mention that uh, you know I really got my start thinking about China's role in this region by thinking about a four-way dynamic, which included the United States, uh, and, and how the US-China competition globally was likely to affect South Asia in particular. When you try to add the pieces up, of course, there's a great deal of kind of crystal ball gazing and looking forward into things that we don't know, but there are a few things that do jump out. Uh, China's greater involvement in Pakistan has the potential to embolden Pakistan to make it feel like it has the backing of a major regional power in its dealings with its larger neighbor, India, which have long basically always been hostile. And so that has the potential to make Pakistan um, more willing to take risks in its dealings with India. At the same time, India seeing that and also being more and more concerned about China's direct involvement in India's neighborhood or what India perceives as its zone of, of hegemony in South Asia across the subcontinent, is increasingly nervous about China and about the China-Pakistan nexus. And so I fear and, and perceive that it's more likely that this is uh, that China's greater involvement in Pakistan is destabilizing for the region, that it may, India's wariness and skepticism, concerns about what's going on, plus Pakistan's potential for emboldenment uh, with China's backing, plus China's own greater ambitions will lead to uh, a spiral of uh, greater conflict uh, between those three actors than even what we've seen um, over prior decades. The past couple of years have been instances of this. Uh, India and Pakistan gone toe-to-toe, a level of violence, a level of um, tit-for-tat exchange, um, airstrikes inside of Pakistan that we really hadn't seen in, in quite some time. And now, perhaps even more worrisome, a breakdown in a, in a kind of a pattern of nonviolent management of border tensions between India and China. Um, that's really got me worried about where that relationship is likely to go uh, moving forward. So all in all, not a, not a happy story. <laughs> Not a good news story about China's involvement in the region, uh, but more worrisome. If your assessment is right, that this is likely to be destabilizing overall, what makes sense for the United States in its approach to South Asia, in its approach to India and Pakistan here? Well, uh, there's not a simple answer to that, unfortunately, either, because a big part of, of what we would like to see 
from India and what now several U.S. presidents have been working to see from India is uh, an emerging strategic partnership that would encourage India itself to be to continue to be a rising power and a partner, a strategic partner in this Indo-Pacific region as the United States is grappling with the geopolitical challenge posed by China. But if we overinvest in the India relationship uh, in certain ways, we do run the risk of heightening the uncertainty and the instability that South Asia already faces, as I've already just described. Uh, of, of playing into dynamics that are already looking a little bit dicey, of, of creating a higher probability of in direct India-China conflict, of India-Pakistan conflict, of conflicts that would suck the United States in as increasingly as a partner to India. And so there's a real balancing act that we have to contemplate here. We, we can't see this as a simple, you know, um, as, as much of a fan of, of seeing India as a partner as I may be, it's not so simple as bolstering India uh, being an unalloyed good. We have to be careful about the potential knock-on effects that could have uh, in its relations with Pakistan and China in ways that, that may bring about uh, or worsen crises in the relative near term. Um, so as, as I look, for instance, at the past year of India-China conflict along their land border, uh, there are ways that we can help India that I think are, are not destabilizing. That is, uh, improved, uh, helping India improve its capacity to see what China is up to along their border, uh, to anticipate that, um, to, uh, to better defend against what I perceive has been Chinese, um, small aspects of Chinese aggression, of so-called nibbling of, of the land border. Um, and we can help India kind of get out ahead of those Chinese moves in ways that I think could be stabilizing. Um, but we don't want to uh, encourage uh, what would conceivably be a very costly arms race along that land border that would lead both India and China to simply throw more force uh, along that border and then increase the stakes and the risks that each runs uh, when they come into conflict, as they're likely to do as their patrols. Uh, will come into conflict. So um, we have to find ways to kind of relatively inexpensively help India uh, defend, maybe even deter against Chinese aggression without increasing the, the risks and the, and the stakes uh, at the same time. One of the more valuable uh, parts of your book, I think, is uh, where you talk about Central Asia. And I think uh, this tends to be a region that is uh, uh, undervalued in the uh, DC foreign policy analytical community. Um, so China pursues a number of interests here. You talk a lot about uh, its approach to Kazakhstan, um, but it's also the case that uh, it's an area where Russia and China both compete and cooperate. Uh, so explain what China is up to in this region and, and why it matters for informing US strategy. Yeah, the, the one thing where I would start is by saying, um, Central Asia matters to the United States, um, but not all places that matter matter equally. And Central Asia is very far from the United States. And as, uh, and as I try to explain in the book, if we're thinking about prioritizing regions, it's not wrong for most <laughs> policymakers in, in the DC area to put a lesser priority on a, on a place that is generally landlocked and very distant. 
Um, I, I don't have a problem with that. I think it would be only in the fullness of time that the strategic significance of Central Asia might be realized by a more dominant China in ways that could make it able to better compete against the United States globally. Um, but at the moment, uh, this is a region where Russia and China are the dominant players, and that's likely to continue to be the case for some time. And the only question is uh, how Russia, or the central question that, that I'm interested in is, how Russia is or is not likely to respond to China's increasing first economic, as I've said, and then also now more political and potentially security engagement with countries like Kazakhstan that have, at least for hundreds of years, been a part of the extended Russian imperial orbit. And uh, so the question there is, you know, right now Russia is nearly entirely fixated on its competition with the United States, with the West, its hostility uh, toward the United States, and uh, particularly Vladimir Putin's hostility toward Washington, D.C., but it's a, it's a broader uh, kind of obsession. And at the same time as it's obsessed with us, it has, it seems, zero capacity or bandwidth to contemplate the implications, the strategic implications to Russia of China's increasing involvement in uh, Central Asia. And that leads me to wonder whether Russia will wake up uh, to, the, to the threat posed by China to it, to its interests in this region, or whether it will continue in a way to sleepwalk on the China front because it is, as I said, fixated or even obsessed with its Western front. Um, right now, that seems like a, a genuine concern. And, uh, and, and at the moment, uh, Russia and China are trying to make the most of their partnership, which I think is one of convenience, generally, directed toward us, because it's more a matter of uh, pushing back against the United States, against the West, than it is a matter of shared interests or affinities between the two of them. Um, and so that, that seems to be the trajectory that they're on. I just, I don't think it can hold uh, forever. And so uh, as it begins to unravel, uh, that will then present uh, questions in Moscow. Who, who lost Central Asia? Or why and how? Presumably, this situation will present questions in, in DC as well. Of course, back in the Cold War, it was thought to be strategically savvy to take advantage of the cleavages between Moscow and Beijing and to befriend the latter in order to avoid a you know, kind of undifferentiated hard line towards the communist powers. Um, that might push them together strategically. Some people suggest today that properly triangulating these relationships is strategically wise. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, it, it would be nice, uh, I suppose, in a hypothetical sense, if we could throw a wrench into the works between Russia and China, um, somehow sweep in and, and befriend Russia to, to deprive China of that, that strategic partner. Uh, the problem is that at the moment, that seems entirely unlikely. Um, there's almost nothing we can do to, and, and there would, and it could be positively counterproductive to really try to wean uh, a Vladimir Putin dominated Russia uh, away from China in ways that would force us into concessions with Russia uh, on other fronts. Um, so it's very difficult to see how, you know, that wrench can really be thrown in in a way that uh, looks like that that cold cold war maneuver you're describing of uh, kind of playing playing the China card and play the Russia card now 
Um, tough to see, uh, but narrowly, what I could imagine is uh, simply uh, reinforcing, not just with Russia, but with lots of other countries around the world as well, our observations about uh, the the implications of their dealings with with China. Uh, so it's not so much as a matter of growing closer to Russia, but uh, ex- exploiting possible Russian concerns, as I've identified them, uh, with China's greater influence in its backyard. Um, and uh, sort of simply pointing them out, clarifying that while Russia has uh, repeatedly, for instance, uh, described its uh, being very comfortable with a division of labor with China in Central Asia, where Russia continues to be the security pro- provider, China is the dominant economic player, uh, to observe where uh, that may be breaking down and where China is also uh, taking an a more active security role um, as a means to simply uh, reinforce some of the natural tendencies toward competition and potential friction between the two of them. And then also over time to keep open the door in a, say, post-Putin Russian scenario uh, where we can, we can begin to discuss things in a less hostile way. Uh, and some of the things that we'll want to discuss are our mutual concerns about, about what China is up to uh, in, in Central Asia and elsewhere. So in the fullness of time, yes, but in the near term, very, very difficult to see where we have a lot of latitude uh, or opportunity with Russia. Towards the end of your book, you lay out a number of uh, different strategic options for the United States approach to China, and I want to actually explore each one. So mm-hmm. the first one you talk about is strategic withdrawal, and it has a variant that you call strong point defense, I think, taking from K- Kennan. So yeah. talk to us about that option. Yeah. So one of the questions I often get, particularly as someone who's as in the past, I've focused a lot on Pakistan. One of the questions I often get from American foreign policy makers and observers is, you know, so the Chinese are more involved in Pakistan. Uh, that's, this does not sound like a problem. Uh, this sounds like uh, almost a gift uh, to have the Chinese invested in a messy and difficult place like Pakistan, where we had so little success over the years. And then take a similar story and broaden that out to Iran, really to much of continental Eurasia. And then they say, so this is, uh, you know, uh, really not a problem for the United States to back off this area and to effectively cede it in a strategic sense to Chinese influence. What's the downside to that? And, uh, you know, I think uh, the reason why I tried to explore this, this option of sort of a strategic withdrawal or uh, pulling back to points where we really do have clearer interests and influence, uh, say, in Western Europe uh, with our allies there or in East Asia with our treaty allies there, is because it's, a, it's actually a serious position. Certainly for the near term, um, our resources and our influence in this neck of the woods, this part of the world, are far less, uh, certainly, than we would like them to be or we might imagine them to be, and China's influence is growing. So there is a, a certain uh, realism to that approach that, that I find uh, compelling and attractive. Uh, as other people, including uh, officials I consulted within the, within the government, within the U.S. government, observed, um, there are some natural 
they describe them as antibodies to Chinese influence in Eurasia, uh, including uh, Muslim majority populations in a number of the countries who will naturally have some qualms, at least, with uh, closer ties with an enormous communist, uh, anti, in many cases, anti-Muslim uh, country. And so that's not going to be an easy relationship for, for China to manage. So let it uh, attempt to do so, and, and we'll pull back. Now, the, the one downside to all of this logic, and, and that I try to extend, explain in the book, is you know in the near term, I'm less concerned about it. But over time, we also have to anticipate that as China's capacity for extending its influence in these areas grows, its capacity for projecting power across them, military power even, across them will grow. Um, and that does not necessarily mean it will bring with it uh, peace or stability or harmony or even dominant control over these regions. What you could get is conceivably a much messier, more divided, more violent, uh, and dangerous part of the world with simultaneously greater penetration by Chinese power. Uh, and that doesn't look very pretty. So you know, there, there is a question of sort of completely ceding this ground to Chinese influence um, may be appealing and attractive in the near term and may have come with some costs over the longer term. I, I simply wouldn't want to pe leave people uh, too rosy-eyed with the prospect of, you know, what will come of a, of a more Chinese-dominated continental Eurasia. It doesn't mean uh, peace, development, win-win, uh, harmony, uh, in, the, in quite the way I think that, that the Chinese sometimes sketch it out to be. It could be a much uglier uh, scenario than that. And I, I think we need to be alive to that possibility, uh, it, at least. You also explore something called peaceful accommodation. What, what might that look like? Yeah, look, there, there are a number of, of uh, more middle ground areas where our response to China, say to the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, need not be so critical. A number of, of uh, observers have said, you know, as there are a number of areas where China is attempting to do things like build roads or power plants or rail lines or pipelines uh, that may actually serve to benefit uh, people in the region and the broader regional economy to encourage the types of uh, regional economic integration um, that in fact, the United States, Japan, the Europeans, uh, really everyone has attempted to encourage now for decades in this part of the world. Uh, and so maybe there are areas where not only can we stand aside and allow the Chinese to continue on with these activities, but we may be even able to find opportunities for partnership with the Chinese, or at least to harmonize our own development agenda, our own assistance agenda in some of these countries, or our agenda through multilateral bodies, whether it's the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank, or working with other partners like Japan, uh, in ways that would complement activities that the Chinese are undertaking, and actually maybe produce significantly better outcomes on the ground. So a spe specific example, say in Pakistan, would be where the Chinese may be building um, a power plant, but haven't invested in the uh, technology uh, to improve the, uh, the electrical grid that that power plant is connected to, or haven't invested in uh, the training of the, the individuals, the engineers, and the 
and the operators who would actually manage either the plant or the or the uh, electrical grid. Maybe those are areas where we and and others in the international community can step in and and, and actually assist and turn uh, partway Chinese investments um, and possibly uh, investments that would end up being ineffective into more effective and more successful investments that actually serve our and China's uh, strategic agenda uh, in in some important cases like Pakistan or uh, Kazakhstan or some of the other cases that I look at. Critical publicity. I think the Biden administration might be engaging in some of this. Absolutely. And, and so was the Trump administration before it. And, uh, and I have uh, sympathy for this uh, option as well. But the, the basic notion is that China is up to a variety of different things. And it's important that we and others shed a light on uh, the, the pros and especially, given that we're in a competition with China, the cons of what China is doing. Now, some of this, uh, I think, can be a little bit misplaced. I think the, for an example of that would be a, a kind of a tendency toward the overemphasis of the so-called debt trap diplomacy that the Chinese have been up to uh, in a number of cases, but Sri Lanka is the poster child for this. I think we sometimes come across as um, uh, providing too simple analysis, uh, too critical in ways that really don't appeal to the target audience, in this case, that don't make Sri Lankans more inclined to be critical of China uh, or more likely to work with us, um, but simply to see us as um, kind of troublemakers, uh, as uh, unhelpful uh, outside players. So part of the, part of the challenge is how, are you, how can you be critical, but also constructively critical in ways that win over audiences in other countries uh, convincing them not only that maybe what China is doing is not as good as it looks uh, and comes with unforeseen downsides, but that there are actual realistic alternatives to help these countries solve the problems that they face. That's the, the best version of a critical publicity strategy. And sometimes we get closer to that. Uh, you know, one of the approaches that I've, I've uh, heard about, which has yet to be fully implemented, is this idea of a so-called blue dot network for um, identifying and effectively branding high quality infrastructure investment projects in Asia. And the notion here was that if a project was actually seen as um, smart as an investment, a sound sustainable investment, one that didn't come with enormous costs, uh, either economically or environmentally or in uh, terms of labor exploitation and so on, then they would probably qualify for a blue dot designation, which would mean that they were considered good by a broader number of states, not just the United States, but, J but Japan and Australia and others. This seems like a smart move. If we could actually get our act together and figure out how to identify a blue dot network uh, project from a non-blue dot network project, then maybe uh, we, could, we could really uh, show other countries that, that we're invested in helping them identify better projects and, and separating them from uh, potentially counterproductive ones. And that would lead over time, if successful, to these countries making better informed decisions about which things they actually invest their own resources in, um, which types of projects they go into uh, with China or with anyone else for that matter. Uh, that's, a, that's a I think, a, a smart approach to critical publicity. Um, a last observation would be on this is that I've talked to, for instance, a number of Pakistanis who 
see China's investment in Pakistan as uh, you know something that they they simply they don't really have alternatives. No one else is investing in Pakistan, including the United States. And so, who are they to to say no to Chinese investments? And in particular, um, as I talk to them more, they they have uh, I think some qualms increasingly about investments in their telecommunications infrastructure, which would enable uh, not just China, but also their own government to be engaged in more repressive uh, political actions against opposition figures or really against anyone who opposes the state. And that's something that that I think makes a lot of Pakistanis nervous. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that I think the United States should should be clear about uh, in its public messaging. And so that that would fall into the critical publicity uh, side of things as well. The tricky part with this approach, uh, I think, um, revealed itself in the clash between Secretary of State Blinken and uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and their Chinese counterparts a few weeks ago. Um, it would behoove us to be careful not to wave our finger at China for doing things that we do as a matter of routine. Um, and, you know, the, the, the worry and concern about China enabling dictatorships around the world is one of those things that America can't really point its finger about because we do that as a matter of routine. Uh, the last two I'll conjoin, um, selective competition and militarized competition. What are these like? So, no, you make, you make a really good point about the challenges that the United States currently faces, especially the Biden administration faces, uh, in talking to the world about uh, enabling democracy. Uh, we have our own problems at home that are quite obvious, but also uh, we don't have a, a spotless record uh, with other countries. And, and I certainly get this from uh, Pakistani friends who will say, hey, look, at the historical record, uh, suggests the United States has been more than happy to work with Pakistan's military dictators over many years. Uh, China may be no different. My, my only qualm with accepting that fully is that uh, there are many in the United States, including not just in the Biden administration, but elsewhere, who, are, who have always been deeply uncomfortable working with Pakistan's military dictators and are more comfortable working with democracies. Does that mean that they have always prioritized democracy? Certainly not. Um, but in their very hypocrisy uh, and their discomfort, uh, that I think that still separates us uh, from Beijing uh, in some important ways. Um, so I don't want to overemphasize that or dismiss criticisms of the U.S. for, you know, for suggesting that we can do more or have done more to support democracy uh, in the world than we have. But um, but to say that there still is a, an important difference for for uh, friends around the world who are opposition figures or independent journalists, um, I would like them to at least at times believe that they have friends and supporters, even champions inside the United States in ways that they'll never find uh, in China. And that's a distinction um, that I think is is still relevant. So I'll join up these last two. Talk about selective competition and militarized competition. Yeah. So uh, look, I think selective competition is picking and choosing our battles uh, with the Chinese in places like, uh, so looking at continental Eurasia, where are we going to find that we can actually outdo China, not at its own games, but in a kind of a 
asymmetrical approach to dealing with, with Chinese actions. So um, a minor example of this would be in a place like Kazakhstan, it makes no sense for us to attempt to um, uh, somehow uh, try to compete with China in the pure physical infrastructure development game. Uh, they've got that more or less locked up. But there are other ways that we can compete with China, say on uh, science and technology or higher education uh, in terms of exchanges and things like that, uh, or even uh, direct uh, investment and partnership on the economic front, um, where we have something to offer that China may not. And that's where we need to selectively identify where it matters to compete. In the case of Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan in itself, not terribly geopolitically important for the United States, but because China is increasingly involved there, maybe it makes sense for the United States to be just marginally more involved uh, as a means to provide uh, Kazakhstan's leadership with alternatives uh, that they are desperate to, uh, to find so that they do not become, uh, say, solely owned subsidiaries of China, Inc., uh, that they can actually play China against Russia, against the United States, which preserves a degree of autonomy, of sovereignty, uh, which is something that they clearly value, and which actually uh, plays to our interests as well. So how can we uh, selectively identify those instances where it makes sense, um, either to play a marginal role, like I've just described there, or maybe a more significant role, as I've already tried to describe uh, in the case of India, which is, I think, likely to be an important partner in South Asia, and how to contemplate that competition, that geopolitical competition with China, as we consider other regional dynamics like the um, the Iran problem, Iran's uh, nuclear weapons, and so on. So that's selective competition. And then the last, the more extreme approach is to think about the military implications of all of this. And to consider, if not in the near term, perhaps over the coming decades, what it would mean to have a China that is more militarily involved, possibly even more dominant as a military player and security provider across an enormous swath of territory that leads all the way overland to uh, the Persian Gulf, uh, even to the Mediterranean or near to the Mediterranean, what that would mean for the United States um, in military terms, because if we have, uh, as suggested by uh, sort of a more selective approach or even a, a standoff approach to the region, if we have maintained close ties with our uh, allies in Western Europe and East Asia, as China continues to grow, uh, that power and military projection capability will eventually reach their doorstep. So we'll have to to contemplate what that means and perhaps prepare for that, and think about uh, that preparation in a in a in a long term way, uh, not something that needs to happen overnight. Or we need to be concerned about every Chinese move, say a base in Djibouti or investments at Gwadar, but how the sum total of that would be uh, likely to reshape China's footprint globally. Um, and what that would mean for us uh, militarily. So that's that's that option, uh, and I think that 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 long term approach is one that's that's warranted as well. Now that we've very thoroughly explored the options, um, how do you assess the Biden administration's approach so far to China, and uh, where do you think it ought to go? Look, I think at the moment they've they've played um, a game which reflects concerns 
about tactics and dealing with China diplomatically and lessons learned, I think they believe from the early Obama administration that reflect both uh, domestic political lessons, that is how the American body politic responds, and tactical lessons about how to make sure that you don't uh, lose points in your dealings with China right out of the gate. And they believe very clearly that taking a tough approach toward China, um, an unapologetic approach, uh, one that is uh, quite critical, is likely not just to, to you know, keep Beijing up at night or something like that, but does not cede any ground or suggest weakness that China, they believe that Beijing would just capitalize or pocket right out of the gate um, and try to take advantage of over the next uh, four years. So I see in, in, their, in their latest, or their, their opening salvo, something more along the line of tactics um, that plays into a, a broader strategy, where, which I think will be an organizing principle of this administration, which is competition with China is going to affect every aspect of what the United States is doing around the world um, in big and small ways. And the Trump administration um, took a, a pretty, uh, I would say, undifferentiated approach to this, a not terribly subtle approach to this. The Biden administration sees the threat in ways that are actually fairly similar, um, but is likely to try to prioritize, particularly, uh, and this is this is the, the critical differentiator, particularly in its dealings with with friends and allies. That is the the key to the strategy for the Biden administration for competing with China is trying to come with a lot of friends to the table and uh, not alienating uh, regional players. Uh, including NATO partners or Canada or Japan or Korea, um, but, uh, but bringing them along and in effect trying to group China uh, or to uh, make China feel like it's the odd man out as compared to the Trump administration, which effectively went its own way, uh, took the competition, the bilateral with competi competition with China up to a new level, but didn't bring its friends along uh, as it did so. Daniel Marquis, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was a real pleasure.